Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. With us now in studio, Sarah Ponzak, Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. We'd also like to welcome Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Jen, let me start with you because we got the filing a little bit earlier. Google now actually officially being sued for antitrust, say, you know, problems, stuff that hurts mm-hmm. the consumer essentially in its search business. First of all, the stock isn't reacting. What's the sort of time frame for how long these things can run? Oh, Bonnie, these things can go so long. I mean, this is really just the beginning of a marathon. Litigation is very slow, um, and, and it can go for years. So I think, you know, the absolute quickest where there could be a district court opinion, it might be three years. That would be the quickest. It's more likely to be four or five years. And then whoever loses is likely to appeal. Uh, when you think back about the last very big monopolization suit by the DOJ, which was against Microsoft, I mean, from start to finish, really, the whole thing took about 10 years before we ultimately knew what was going to happen and what the impact was. And, and I think this won't be as long, but it will be many years. So investors clearly aren't scared. Are, is the assumption that Google you know, is, is not doing harm to the consumer or that it doesn't really matter whether Google, Google is or isn't? or whether any of these companies will follow suit, it's that uh, they still make lots of money for their investors. (laughs) Right. You know, I think it's a number of things. First, this has been foreshadowed for a really long time, and it was expected. So it's no big surprise. Um, And I think the second thing is there are some analysts, including Bloomberg Intelligence um, equity analyst Jitendra Waral, who believe that even if the worst case scenario happens and the company is forced to break up, it might not actually, you know, hurt the valuation, that it could actually be good. Um, and the second thing is, uh, third thing, I guess, is that these lawsuits are very hard to win in court. The DOJ has an uphill climb here, and it has an even steeper uphill climb if it actually did seek a breakup remedy. And it's just unlikely that they're going to be able to get there at the end of the day. So, Sarah Ponzak, Google, obviously one of the major large mega cap techs, if you like. This is clearly not going to have an impact on this particular trade, but are we seeing this particular trade fade just a little bit anyway in recent days? Uh, It doesn't seem like it, especially I'm looking at the best performers on a points basis right now in the S&P 500. Your top names are Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Procter & Gamble, which did report earnings today and raise its forecast, and then Google Parent Alphabet. So we're not seeing it reflected in the near-term trade. I will say that year-to-date, if you look at the year-to-date performance of some of these companies, Alphabet is at the bottom of the pack, but still up 50%, still a very strong gain in a year that really has been precluded and dominated by a pandemic, by a recession. So you can't by any means say that that is bad. But as Jen said, it's a marathon. I wrote about antitrust claims almost exactly a year ago for Business Week. And I remember analysts saying then that it wasn't a worry. And we are a year later, we have seen some progress and it still seems as though analysts are saying it's not a worry now and you're not seeing it feed through to stock prices. One point that I want to pick up that Jen pointed out too is that some analysts do truly believe that the sum of Google's parts will actually be worth more broken up when you separate Google search. YouTube, Google Cloud, what is the valuation that each of these fetch? And in some cases, some do say that in the worst case scenario, if you want to call it that, if Google is broken up, it doesn't necessarily mean a lower valuation. 
some of the headlines coming out of the call that's actually ongoing. Advertisers must pay a toll to Google search, potentially. The US is asking the court to order Google to stop anti-competitive conduct. And that structural relief may be needed to cure harm. Google Relief may need to go beyond stopping harm as well. So the DOJ is sort of looking for basically, you know, penalties here, uh, or maybe even a breakup of, of parts of Google. Jen, mm-hmm. you know, we have something like 11, 11 attorneys general on this. Why these particular states and, and does it change post-election? You know, I don't think it changes post-election, but I think what we could see post-election is actually another suit. Um, there are other states that have been investigating Google and, and don't agree with this suit because they think it doesn't go far enough. And it should have additional allegations related to other conduct, for instance, within the ad tech market. So it's a possibility what we could see is a separate group of states that could file a lawsuit that mirrors this and adds uh, more allegations to it. I definitely think that's a possibility, and I think that's why um, only 11 states joined. These are the states that clearly think this is the right suit, and there are other states that think this isn't exactly the right suit. How is the U.S. going about this differently to Europe? I mean, obviously, it's an entirely different system, and so there needs to be Mm -hmm. a a different approach. But at the same time, Europe is an agglomeration of states as well in some ways, and Mm -hmm. it's managed to do this. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because this complaint is very similar to what the EU charged Google with with two years ago. Now, the first thing is that the way they've set it up, the states are sort of the countries within the EU are a bit less sovereign, let's say, than the states here. Where the European Commission is going to take on something, the states are then, the countries are then ceding that matter to the EU. And that's what went on here with Google. But two years ago, the European Commission charged Google with very similar allegations here and didn't see fit to seek a structural remedy. You know, what they said is, Google, you have to stop doing these things that are illegal, like your exclusive agreements or your paying off companies to exclusively install Google search as the default, things like that. Um, and they're still sort of working through that. But there have been statements coming out of the EU that so far they think that this has worked. Um, and that would suggest to me it would be very difficult in the United States court to go beyond that. Well, thanks to both of you. Phenomenal. It, it Really, these things, you could dive into them for hours and, and you'd only be scratching the surface. There are so many lawyers, I can tell you, working on these cases right now. And we also have our own Jen Rhee and Sarah Ponsack working on them as well. Jen Rhee, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us. And Sarah Ponsack, Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. What is New York City without the bright lights? Is it some place that people will come even if there is no Broadway or is that what really gives it its heart? Broadway, Lincoln Centre, Carnegie Hall, the Public Theatre, all of the arts organisations that keep the spirit of New York alive and the people here, all of the performance artists. Let's bring in somebody who knows a little bit about a lot of things when it comes to New York City from its real estate to its theatres. Kenneth Laub is a producer, real estate developer and composer. Ken, thanks for joining. When you speak with your friends these days, what's the thing that most comes up um, among you all? I mean, obviously the pandemic and and where we are in it, but in terms of New York City and, and what gives it its character? What do you all talk about? Well, let me, let me, for the benefit of your listeners, give them a little bit of background. New York City, as you probably know, is the cultural center of the United States, if not the world. And uh, approximately 300,000 jobs are associated directly or indirectly with Broadway community. I'm not just talking about performers, dresses, directors, and backstage people, but also the hotels, restaurants, and the numerous other 
with people who are attached to Broadway for a living. You have 65 million people visit New York City yearly. That's what the tourist people put out. 30 million take in a show. 20% come from abroad. 20% are 65 and older. That's $1.8 billion in revenue that comes from Broadway receipts. So I guess you could say easily that Broadway is a vital part of the New York City ecosystem, and we talk about that a lot. So, Ken, you know, Broadway is closed until the end of May. That means tourism, you know, it, it has to be down because a, a lot of tourists come to New York specifically to see a Broadway show. And, you know, they spend, spend their time in Times Square because that's the theatre district. And as you say, stay in hotels off of Times Square and seniors all over the country come f- with deals to visit Broadway. And it's just it's wonderful, you know, and, and that's that's just Broadway. I mean, y- technically, you could suggest that perhaps some of the other venues are more for locals, but Broadway certainly brings people in from the outside. What are Broadway producers thinking in terms of when there will next be a new production on Broadway? Well, the arts are essential to the city's identity, economy, and quality of life. We're living through the worst cultural recession in our history. It's estimated that we will have lost about $30 billion from cultural institutions. So you might say we've lost part of our city's heart and wallet. But but it, it doesn't end there. There's a, there's a much bigger issue that, that we need to touch on here. And that is, we've heard these various dates about Broadway getting up and running, and the last one had it pushed back now to May of next year. And I'm not sure that's even going to be realistic. Mm. People don't really understand that there are several issues here. Um, let me give you some examples. The problems for theaters and, and concert halls starts with a ventilation system, which in many cases needs updating. There are cramped quarters for artists and other workers in backstage areas. And there's a lack so far of federal guidance about what safety measures are required. Some of these theaters, like the Belasco, the Lyceum, the Hudson, others are 100 years old um, or more. They have narrow passageway, dressing rooms, sometimes shared, that are the size of closets, And actors who do quick changes are in there with a lot of other people who are helping them and assistants all breathing the same cubic feet of oxygen. So there are going to have to be new rules set forth here before we reopen. And, And from what I've been told, the state and the city are working on guidelines that will require mask or face coverings for all staff and visitors, will require visitors to maintain six feet of distance or more. They will um, end up putting in uh, limited visiting capacity, they say 25%, which frankly is not a way for Broadway to make money. Well, exactly, and that's where I want to go now in the time that we have left, because we all know that only the longest-running shows make money for their producers, right? You know, the the hope is that you'll make your money back, but for many of these shows, even as good as they are, they just cost so much to put on that they don't get... You know, they don't make profits for their producers. But at the same time, they're part of the cultural fabric. Are there theatres that do not survive this in Broadway? Would you repeat that question again? Are there theatres that go away? So the Schubert family, for example, do they need to close some of their theatres or will they all survive this? I'm not sure of the answer to that question unless they are able to make the appropriate changes that meet with the state and city guidelines 
and that we have a reliable vaccine that makes people comfortable returning even on a limited basis yeah. and even with discounted tickets. But for example, so they may not have the rental problem that most people have, right? They may have a thousand year deal or they may own the building. Do you know what the situation is there, Ken? Well, I, I think I just answered your question. The situation is very simple. They will do whatever it's necessary to get up and running, but they haven't yet defined what that means. And they will vary from one facility to another. A modern theater will not have these problems, but some of the older ones will have considerable difficulty meeting those guidelines. So, Ken, final question, because you're also a real estate mogul for many decades in the city. What do you see happening with real estate in the center of the city? Do we see prices drop substantially from here for buyers? They've already dropped plenty, and I think there will be some stabilization um, probably after the election and going into the next year. But I think that... uh, uh, commercial real estate is going to be hurt in a variety of different ways and there will be a lot of potential foreclosures uh, and debt issues that will uh, emerge. Um, All this has to be worked out over um, a period of time. But let me add in closing this interview that there's there's an expression and this is applicable to Broadway. Charlie Chaplin once said, nothing is forever in this world. And that includes our problems. So positive thinking is is a prerequisite here. Absolutely. Ken, we rely on you for that. Thank you so much. Ken Laub, who is a real estate developer, producer and composer, part of the fabric of Broadway, joining us there. And of course, we know that Broadway will be back. We know that we'll see all of those shows again and all those shows that you missed first time around. You'll just, just be so happy to see them when it all happens again. All we need is a vaccine. Tropical Smoothie Cafe. It began in Atlanta and it is now an 850 plus fast casual franchise serving not just smoothies, but also all sorts of salads and drinks and wraps and sandwiches. Let's bring in the person who is CEO of Tropical Smoothie Cafe. And that is Charles Watson. Charles, thank you for joining my pleasure, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Talk to us about how difficult it must be right now, what the challenges are for Tropical Smoothie Cafe, and how many you've managed to keep open. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'd say our story is actually a very positive one. Uh, like many restaurant chains, we fell off the COVID cliff uh, about March. Uh, and for our brand, we bottomed out in April uh, in terms of comp sales, uh, climbed back up the sales ladder in May, and we went positive comp sales uh, to the tune of 12% in June. Uh, so while it was a very tenuous uh, and difficult time, uh, I would tell you that we are comping positively in 2020 uh, and very happy with how our franchisees have fought back uh, amid the pandemic pandemic uh, to serve our guests. So we're actually in a relatively good space uh, and expect to beat our 2019 comp sales uh, by shifting a lot of our business to focus on convenience, the anytime, any place for our guests uh, to access the brand through digital channels, third-party delivery, our website, etc. So we've done well in coming out of the pandemic. Right, and you're even opening new cafes across the U.S., so very much congratulations. How have you done, though, when it comes to things like rents, franchisees, paying you guys i mean have you had difficulties that way that you've had to sort of overlook or you know make easier for franchisees to pay their rent or what have you 
Sure. So we've done a lot of work working with our franchisees and concerts to, to aid them. So obviously through the time, the PPP loans, uh, our franchise development team and our real estate team really turned into uh, PPP and rental uh, negotiation folks there for about three months. So net-net, we've come out of it um, and are not having any rental uh, rate issues or any default issues because the business has bounced back and the franchisees are cash flowing. That said, uh, everyone is expecting rental rates to come down precipitously. We have not seen that. I think that landlord across the country, especially in the prime retail spaces that we look for, especially those that are in cap and drive through, they are really holding on to the rental rates that they set in 2018 and 2019 and haven't come off of those. The other big challenge that we're having uh, to, to the bottom line for our franchisees is the rapidly escalating triple net charges that we're seeing, especially uh, real estate taxes. In some markets, we're seeing triple nets consistently at 15 to $20 per square foot. So that's certainly a challenge, uh, but we hope that the real estate correction does come around to provide some uh, relief on those rental rates for our franchisees. Absolutely. I mean, particularly when you see, you know, new places that have come up for rent are obviously renting at a lot cheaper prices in in some of the large major metropolitan areas, at least. I don't know about around the country, but certainly in New York and San Francisco and places, there are discounts on, on new rental properties. Do you need more PPP money? We do not. We do not. We are in a very, very good position. Our franchisees are, are cash flow positive. Many of our franchisees are having uh, having a fantastic year. Again, uh, a very difficult year and very fraught, but we've been able to come through it. So for our particular brand, and I don't speak uh, for all restaurant brands because I know that there are many, many that are hurting and I feel for them, uh, but we do not currently know. So that's, that's a great success story. What about your hiring and layoffs? Did you need to lay off people? Did you manage to hold on to everybody? Well, we actually took uh, took the opportunity to, to reorganize. As, as we talk about the shift to digital and the, the underlying foundational changes that are happening in the restaurant business in order to provide guests uh, with the access and the convenience and the ease that they're looking for, we had to make additional investments in uh, in digital uh, properties. Uh, so we did have to restructure and move some people around, but we did not have any uh, standard layoffs just to uh, just to keep our G&A down. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting the way you, you say that the, what, what, what originally started off as a sort of like a cafe enterprise almost became a real estate type of enterprise so I imagine you needed to scale up in some areas or some of your employees did right? Indeed. So I would tell you it's the scale up for us in the technology area of the business and also the development area of the business. We've opened 80 restaurants so far this year and we sold almost 200 franchises. So back to your point about real estate, what we found is for new development restaurants, of which we have a pipeline of over 500, it's actually getting the landlord's attention on doing new deals because they are spending so much time working out with existing tenants. So that's actually been a little bit of a headwind for for us as a brand that's trying to, to sign new leases and open new locations, which is relatively interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting. Charles, are you ready for more shutdowns? We have, you know, epidemiologists saying we're headed for a difficult three to six months. We are ready for it. Again, I hate to be a broken record, but it's the shift to digital. We think that we can we can maintain and continue to move the business forward. We certainly wish it on no one, consumers or, or anyone else. We're prepared for it, and we do not think it will be good. We think it will be a continued hit, but we think that we can weather the storm much, much better based on the past six months of work we've done as a brand. We're almost out of time, but I am curious as to what your plans are. Is this private equity backed? Might you ever go public? How? What will the exit look like? 
Ooh, good questions, good questions. We're currently owned by Levine Lightman Capital Partners, a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles. Fantastic partners of ours. And what they do with us, no one knows. So we'll see. I think I think a public option is certainly possible, but I think that's, uh, you know, three, four, five years out. All right. Well, you keep us posted. I'm sure we'll be the first to know. Charles, thank you so much for joining and congratulations on the success uh, navigating through the pandemic for Tropical Smoothie Cafe once again. Started off in Atlanta and now across the country. That's CEO Charles Watson. Back to markets now and let's bring in David Katz, CIO of Matrix Advisors. David, I want to talk to you about the election, the outlook, the VIX being close to 30 and so on. But first, I have to ask you about Google because we finally got what we were anticipating, the DOJ suit. The stock didn't do much uh, except at a certain point it did start to decline and now we're sort of flat. Does an investor care about a DOJ suit against Google? It's never a good thing. You know, clearly this is going to be a headwind for a number of years. If you look back at the IBM suit maybe 30 or 40 years ago or the Microsoft suit 20 years ago, uh, these things are, are negative and they definitely slow a company down. In terms of Google, we expect it to do the same. Having said that, we think that their prospects are very good. They're going to get through this, and it is one of the cheaper of the high-priced, hot technology companies. So we would use any weakness to either start positions in Google or add positions in Google because we do think they were going to get through this, but do understand it is a negative. Yeah. Now, given that you're willing to add to positions and even enthusiastic about adding to positions, should we extrapolate from that that, that, that that's the same across growth stocks for you? Um, no, we're actually pretty wary about growth stocks. Uh, if you look at 2020 uh, year-to-date performance, growth stocks have had their greatest outperformance versus value stocks since 1979. Uh, right now, they're selling at pretty excessive valuations. Uh, investors are piling money in because they look for a repeat of this, and that's simply not going to happen. Uh, so we are pretty wary about growth stocks, whether it's a Netflix or a Zoom or a Tesla. Uh, People are buying them because the business prospects are good, uh, which they are, but they're not paying any attention to the valuation on them. And we think ultimately valuation and gravity are going to keep those stocks from rising at the rates that they have been. So in general, this market has proven extraordinarily resilient, David. Does it continue to do so? I mean, whether we get stimulus or not, is is that a big factor in whether we continue to see resilience? Well, we think if you get the stimulus, whether it's now or a few weeks from now, it's going to happen. And we do think that's important for the economy and then ultimately for the stock market. But one of the reasons that the stock market has been as resilient as it's been is both the Fed and the federal government have been doing everything they can to stabilize the economy. With interest rates at zero, there's tremendous liquidity. That liquidity is flowing into the stock market. That's driving stock prices higher. In addition, the first federal bailout program, the $2.8 trillion, has really been effective. It's proved to be a lifeline for smaller and mid-sized businesses. It's a lifeline for individuals. Uh, Credit quality is still pretty good. So as long as the government continues to step up and as long as you have this tremendous liquidity, uh, we're pretty bullish on stocks for the next 12 to 18 months. We think the economy, uh, which was in an exceptionally deep recession, is going to come out of that and we're in the recovery mode. And it really is not how fast the recovery is, but directionally we're recovering uh, with zero interest rates. That's good for stocks. Does it matter who is the next president? Um, 
for a lot of reasons it does, but in terms of the economy and the stock market, not so much. Uh, we looked at the period 1946 to 2019 in terms of having a Democratic president or a Republican president, uh, and the results were pretty good for investors, which is stocks generally went up regardless of which administration is in. Uh, they did a little bit better for Democrats. So we wouldn't change what you're doing in investing, but do take comfort that you don't have to sell stocks uh, if a Democrat wins or if a Republican wins. Stay the course, look at the long term, and look at fundamentals and businesses rather than who's in charge. One area that's been a bit of a laggard this year, and I know it's interesting to you, is the dividend stock area. Many are, are still, as you say, performing pretty well. Do you anticipate that what they'll grow their dividends, or, or what, why is this such a, a, a curious area for you? Well, right now, uh, this year, momentum stocks and growth stocks have done great. Everything else has been left for dead. Uh, dividend stocks are a key part of that left for dead. So if you look at a lot of these companies, uh, they've been growing their earnings. They've been raising their dividend this year in a uh, tremendous and deep recession, uh, but they're not getting any credit for that. Now, the reason that we think it's going to be very important in 2021 and beyond is that the Fed has signaled that they're going to keep rates at zero for the foreseeable future, maybe another three to five years. Money markets are paying zero. The 10-year Treasury is paying 0.78 at some point. Investors are going to wake up and say, holy cow, I can't get anything on my money. Where can I go? And if you can go into very slow and steady stocks that are paying you a 4 or 5% yield uh, with some earnings growth and with dividend growth down the road, we think that's going to be a very, very attractive place for people to put money to work. And the key is to get there now, not after they've had a great rally a year from now. Yeah. I mean, David, that begs the question. What's your return assumption? What are you looking for your portfolios to return? Well, we think a normal return assumption for the next uh, three to five years probably goes back to eight, nine, or ten really? percent. Really? Um, yes. Uh, you know, you're starting from a uh, reasonable valuation on normalized earnings, and rates are so low, uh, which makes stocks one of the few games in town. And if stocks were at 30 times earnings, we would not be particularly optimistic. Uh, but if you can buy a good portfolio of stocks at 15 times earnings with 0% interest rates, uh, we think that's a good background to make money. David, always a pleasure speaking with you. We always learn something new. David Katz is CIO of Matrix Advisors, talking to us there about the stock market, and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.